0: They study the, the Bible together with our leaders. They do different games and activities so that they kind of connect the dots and, and do it in an, kind of an active and engaging way and always have a great time with that. I'm grateful for all of those who pour into our kids. Matthew chapter 1, we are turning a, a major corner this week as we have been working our way through the Bible this year. We're doing a Bible reading plan each week. By the way, you can find that on our website if you're interested in engaging. And even though we may be three-quarters of the way through the year, it's still a great time to engage with the Bible, and all the more so because we've just started the New Testament. And so even if you were to start at this point, you may not be able to read through the, the Bible in its entirety in the remainder of the year, at least not following the plan that we've laid out. You certainly could accomplish that. If you had a mind to do so, but you could pick up the Bible reading plan that we have put together and you could just engage from this point forward and you could read through the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. What a great accomplishment that would be. So I would encourage you to do that. Follow along with us. We're calling this redemption story because what we are seeing is that throughout the Bible, there is this consistent theme of redemption that shows up again and again. One thing that you may or may not be aware of is that in the storied history of First Baptist Church of Chickasha, there was a great preacher who preached here many, many years ago. Whose name was W. A. Criswell? Maybe you've heard of W. A. Criswell. He was the pastor of First Baptist Chickasha in the in the 1930s. He was here for four years before he went on to Muskogee First Baptist, and from there to Dallas First Baptist, where he pastored for 50 years as the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas in its heyday. And W.A. Criswell is a name that is broadly known and largely revered. And Criswell has a common, or I mean rather a very popular sermon that he preached numerous times. He refers to the scarlet thread of redemption, the scarlet thread of redemption that is woven throughout the Bible. And he points to some of the very same passages that we've studied together and, and this consistent theme, this idea that is woven throughout the scripture, that from Genesis to Revelation, what you have is one story of God's redeeming work, of God's saving work, that Plays itself out in numerous ways, and numerous acts, and, and uh, that actually uh, the the idea, not so much the sermon that Criswell preached, uh, but the certainly the, the 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 idea of the scarlet thread of redemption that was actually really sort of instrumental in us choosing, I should say, in me choosing the title of Redemption Story because it's it's one story of redemption told through sixty six. Books of the Bible, and we come now to this major turning point in the action. Now, in English class some years ago, when you were studying literature in high school English, you no doubt learned about a literary device that writers use that's called denouement. And maybe you remember that term, maybe you don't. Uh, so let me let me just refresh your memory. Uh, and, and for any anybody who might be preparing for, like, say, an ACT in the future or something, here's a little something, a little nugget of wisdom. Right, the denouement is a literary device. It's a it's a point in writing and literature where things kind of reach their climax. They build to this crescendo, this point, and then it's it's how all of the events and all of the pieces of the story then all of a sudden fit together. And you begin to see things that maybe up to that point you didn't see. Or, or maybe, you, maybe you, you saw the pieces, but you weren't sure how the author was going to weave all of that together and make sense of it all. That's the point where, that, where, you, where you get to that, that, that grand moment. That, that you've just reached kind of this big point of climax in the story and the things that happen. That's the denouement. That's, that's the, the title of that movement or whatever, if you want to think of it that way, in English. And in so many ways, as we turn the, the page from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we, we arrive at sort of the, the denouement in the story of the Bible. But now we have reached this, this crescendo, this climax, this, this great moment that everything to this point, literally thousands of years of, of history in the nation of Israel, thousands of years of, of this covenant relationship between God and his people has brought us to this moment, Matthew chapter one. Now, what's interesting is that for some 400 plus years, it seems as though God has been silent because the last events recorded in the Old Testament occur more than 400 years before the events of Matthew chapter 1. And for what feels like for the the children of Israel, what feels like more than a lifetime, what feels like a, a series of lifetimes, God has been effectively silent. Now we know that God was actively at work in the midst of all of that. We know that God is never far from us. He is near us in in each and every moment present in our lives certainly he was present in their lives as well but at least from the perspective of the prophets of those who were writing those who were speaking the words of god giving the words of scripture now it seems as though as the things have grown dark things have grown dim things have grown quiet and they're waiting And they're wondering and they're hoping for the fulfillment, the great expectation, the realization of God's Messiah, his anointed, his chosen one, who would arrive on the scene to fix all of their problems, to establish his kingdom, to reestablish the throne of David, and to make things right the way that God had promised. And there was so much expectation wrapped up in their hoping, in their wishing, in their waiting for these events to come. And Matthew gives us this story. Now, each of the gospel writers do in a different way, but Matthew, in particular, as he tells the story, tells the story with great purpose and great planning and great attention to detail, even as we will see as we read through Matthew chapter 1. And we're about to read through a list of names and the Temptation is to get to these points in the Bible when you come to a long list of names and just sort of skip through it. But if you've been following along reading in the Old Testament, you know that this is more than just a a series of names. This is more than just a family tree, a genealogy. This is a summary of everything that God has done and all that he's doing to get things to this point. It's sort of like one of those catch-up episodes when you're binge watching a show. Sometimes there's a a show that becomes really popular, and there will be so many seasons of the show that you you go and you find like a sort of a catch-up a catch-up, a recap, a summary. Maybe it's a YouTube video that somebody's put together or maybe it was even a a show that the creators of the show uh, created. I'll I'll never forget years ago that this TV show Lost when it was on and it was really popular and they were preparing for the final season of Lost and there was like a a catch-up episode of Lost. If you've not watched everything up to now, here's what you need to know in order to engage with the TV show Lost and not be completely in the dark. Well, in effect... What Matthew does here is he gives us the, uh, the catch-up, the genealogy, the story, the summary of all that God has been doing, bringing things to this point. But then he introduces this new series of events, this, this, this unfolding story of redemption that now finds its climax in this baby who was to be born, because Jesus has arrived on the scene. And so let's read together from Matthew chapter 1, and let's see the, the unfolding story of Jesus through the, the pen, the eyes, if you will, of one of his disciples named Matthew. So in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, So from Abraham to David, he gives us a series of names. These are all very important figures, very important names. We'll come back. Let's keep reading. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and and the brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And then this, he says, after the deportation to Babylon... The Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, I flew through those names, and I went through that very quickly. All of the names matter. All of the characters matter, of course, but none more so than Jesus, because the point of what Matthew is telling us is that all of this is pointing us to Jesus. So, we go on to read in verse 17. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You see an element of of, of purposefulness, of purpose that Matthew painstakingly points out these details. We'll come back and spend more time. But let's finish Matthew 1, verse 18. He writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. And so Jesus is born of Mary. Jesus is born the, the... the seed of, of God the Father conceived by the Holy Spirit, even as we sang in, in the words to that song, we sang the song that's called This I Believe the Creed, and it reinforces these same truths. It's, it's, this, this is important theological doctrinal truth that reinforces what God had promised that he would do, and in fact, what he did. And we see all of this is pointing us to Jesus. In fact, as we look at Matthew chapter 1, there are three really important lessons that I want us to see in, in the way that the story is told and the way that these events are put together. And to be clear, Matthew has put these events together in, an, in a purposeful and intentional way, not only to tell the story. Yes, he's, a, he's giving us a historical account of actual real events, but he's doing it in a way that he's wanting to connect the dots, Matthew, in particular, of the writers of the New Testament, goes to great lengths to connect for us. In fact, that that number 14 is really important with Matthew. Even that, we'll talk a little bit more about in in just a minute. But all of this is is, is done with painstaking attention to detail. The first of these lessons that I want us to see is that God's timing can be trusted we consider the, the message of Matthew's gospel, we, we see that God's timing can be trusted, that God is working a grand design that is leading, that is pointing to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's purpose, the fulfillment of God's designs for redemption for all of mankind, for everyone who would turn to Christ as Savior, that God is bringing about redemption Through faith in Jesus and God's timing can be trusted. There are numerous ways that we see this in Matthew's gospel, particularly in Matthew's genealogy, but let me point you to just a few of these. First of all, if you noticed, in Matthew's genealogy, there are five different women who are pointed to in the family tree of Jesus. This is done with great intention and great purpose. Oftentimes in ancient culture, when the, a genealogy was being listed, it, everything was, was shown through the lineage of the father, right? The, through the fathers. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. You've read this numerous times along the way in the Old Testament if you've read through the Old Testament. But Matthew intentionally includes five different women. Look at verse 3, and you see, first of all, Tamar. Tamar, who was the the, the mother of uh, of uh, of these children by Judah, right? Both Perez and Zerah by Tamar, the sons of Judah. But Tamar was was a woman. Not only that, you jump down a few more verses. In verse five, we have two more women. In verse five, we have Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was uh, a woman, also. You have Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, so the grandfather of David, also of Ruth. Then you go down even further, and you see that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, that's Bathsheba. She's not listed by name, but nonetheless, she's referred to. And if you know the stories of each of these women, what you will instantly recognize is there's some scandal attached to each of these women. Tamar was raped by her brother. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth there's some events that happen with Boaz that at least the language is ambiguous that maybe points to a physical relationship between Ruth and Boaz. We don't know for sure. We can't be for certain. But in the, in the book of Ruth where Ruth lays at the feet of Boaz, it at least is euphemistic language that could refer to a relationship that they would have had, a physical relationship. Um, again, we, we don't know that for certain. But nonetheless... Uh, certainly Bathsheba, if you know the, the events of Bathsheba, and David and Bathsheba, that there's some, there's some, there's some scandal. There's, there is what appears to be, at least in each of these cases, rumors of illegitimacy. Why does that matter? Well, I think Matthew includes those details purposefully because he's making the connection even with Jesus. Because, you see, he goes on to tell us that when... Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they had come together, so they would have been considered husband and wife because of their betrothal, because of their arranged marriage, and yet they had not yet consummated the relationship. They had not yet formally uh, become husband and wife. It was, it was a, a promise, and so it would have been right to refer to them as husband and wife, and yet because they had not had a physical relationship yet, it would have been scandalous for Mary to be pregnant. So much so that Joseph prepared himself to put her away, but to do it in a way that was quiet because he was an honorable, he was a just man. There was scandal. There, was this, there, were, there were rumors of illegitimacy even in Jesus' own birth. You see, what is all of that pointing to? Well, it's pointing to the fact that God works even in the most unlikely of ways and even the most unlikely of events and circumstances to accomplish his purpose. God's timing can be trusted. His timing can be trusted. Not only that, I told you that the the numbers matter because in verse 17, Matthew points out that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, let me tell you something because you may have heard this before, you may have even done the study yourself. If you actually work backward through the biblical genealogy, you'll know that there's not exactly 14 there, that there's, in some of these instances, there are more than 14 generations. So what is Matthew doing? Matthew is intentionally arranging and telling the story in such a way that he is pointing to these key movements, these key figures. In in Hebrew, there was, a, uh, there was a, a, a practice around the ordering of things with numbers that was known as gematria, and that, that was a significant and important part of Hebrew culture. And in fact, according to this practice of gematria, where they would assign numbers to letters in their alphabet, sort of like if we were to say A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and you were to decode things that way using this practice of gematria then if you were to assign the the appropriate or the corresponding numbers to the letters in David's name D V D which is how they would have spelled David's name they didn't use consonant i mean rather uh, vowels they only use consonants the 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 consonants add up to the number 14 not only that 14 times in the book of Matthew Matthew tells us Something specific about how these events happened in order to fulfill what the scripture said or what the prophets said. This number 14 really matters to Matthew. He's intentionally purposefully arranging things together according to this number to show that Jesus is the son of David. He is the root of Jesse. He is the promised one of God. And so he's going again to great links to connect all of the dots, to shine the spotlight on this Jesus. Why? Because God's timing can be trusted. But not only that, even the circumstances surrounding Mary's pregnancy are a reminder to us that God's timing can be trusted because Mary is pregnant prior to the consummation of her relationship with Joseph. And according to the laws and the customs of their day, Joseph, not only could he have had her dealt with in in a legal sense by, by issuing her divorce, but she could have been punished even by, by being stoned for, for being an adulteress. That there was, there was potentially not only great scandal and great shame associated with these circumstances, but there was even the legal grounds for, for punishment. And yet Joseph, being a just man, determined that he was just going to deal with things in a quiet manner. And it was in the midst of that that God appeared to Joseph in a dream. Again, because God's timing can be trusted. So if you, if you learn something from Matthew's gospel and his genealogy and the way that he's put these things together, I want you to understand that God's timing can be trusted. Now certainly that's true when it comes to Jesus. That God's timing can be trusted at just the right time, at just the right moment in history, in just the right setting, in just the right scene, with just the right parents, in just the right way, God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. But in the same way that God's timing was perfect and trustworthy with regard to Jesus, God's timing is right in your life as well. You recognize God has never been late on anything. He's never done anything at the wrong time. God, God doesn't, he, he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have to fix problems. He doesn't have to, at least not his own problems. Certainly he works in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our mistakes. And we understand that even in that, God can, can bring about good from our brokenness. But God never, he never, uh, he, he never errs. He never does anything the wrong way at the wrong time in the wrong manner. And so because he is perfect, because his knowledge is perfect, because his power and his authority over all things is perfect, he can be trusted. When you think about your life and your circumstances and your situation, I want you to know with confidence this morning that God's timing can be trusted in your life. Because no doubt, You've been through circumstances. You've been through situations. Maybe you're in the middle of of a season like this now where you look at God's timing and you think, really, Lord? Really? Is this what you, this is what you've chosen? But God's timing can be trusted. I'll say it again and again. His timing can be trusted. Matthew, he shows us that. He demonstrates it in such a clear and a purposeful way, which really points to the second key lesson i want us to learn from matthew chapter one and that is god's plans reveal his purpose god's plans if you will are his designs his intentions his desires his his order of things and as we study his plans as we see what it is that god is doing we begin to understand and recognize his purpose God's plans, according to Matthew, God's plan was to bring about Jesus. That all of these events, the 14 generations from Abraham to David, the 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, the 14 generations from the exile to the birth of Jesus, all of these things are pointing to God's plans. He has plans, and his plans reveal to us his purpose. Verse 21 says plainly he will save his people from their sins what is god's purpose what are what are the plans pointing to the great purpose here that god has is that god is working to save his people from their sins and so all of these events all of these things are showing us that god has a purpose And his purpose is to bring about salvation. Now, one of the things that we've read about over and over again in the Old Testament is that there would come a Messiah. There would be a chosen one. A chosen one who would reign in the line of David, who would be truly the son of David, as it were. Not the literal son, but the descendant of David, And he would reign and rule over the house of David. And what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus is the son of David. Literally, Jesus through Joseph, if you were to draw that connection, is an heir of David. That there is a connection here, there's connective tissue pointing to God's plans, his purpose was to bring about a son who would save his people from their sins but then he goes even a step further in verse 22 and all this took place to fulfill what the lord had spoken by the prophet and then he quotes from the prophet isaiah isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name emmanuel which means god with us so jesus was the fulfillment of god's purpose he was he was the messiah he was the one god had sent so that we might that we might see god's plans come to pass his ultimate purpose accomplished and that's the the third lesson that i want us to see in matthew's gospel is that god's purpose will prevail when the lord sets his sights on something it will happen it's not a matter of if But when? When God determines that something is to take place, then it will take place because he has both the power and the authority to bring it about, to make his purposes prevail. Verse 22 points to that. I probably don't need to tell you this, but I'm gonna state it anyway just so that we don't leave any stone unturned. It is not possible for a virgin to become pregnant. That doesn't happen. If you want to know more about why that doesn't happen, then I would encourage you after church today, find Josh Gresham and you can ask him. His email is listed in the bulletin that you received. He would love to have that conversation with you. I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't love to have that conversation with you. But you know, as the father of four children, I've had a moment with each of our kids, Rayleigh and I, where we have had to explain how the birds and the bees work, right? I mean, how these things happen. And you sit down and you have the awkward conversation that perhaps no parent wants to have, but that honestly every parent needs to have because they're gonna figure it out anyway, right? And so why not shepherd them and guide them through that? But just stating the obvious, virgins don't conceive children. That doesn't happen. But we understand that this takes place miraculously, in order to fulfill the word that God delivered through his prophet Isaiah that a virgin would conceive. There is great purpose here, and what God purposes will prevail. In fact, I told you 14 times in the book of Matthew, 14 different times in the book of Matthew. Get your pen ready. I'm about to rattle these off for you, okay? So that you can look these up. You're not gonna be able to look them all up now, but I'm just gonna quickly run through a list. Matthew chapter one, verse 22. Matthew chapter two, verse 15. Matthew chapter two, verse 17. Chapter two, verse 23. Chapter three, verse 15. Chapter four, verse 14. Chapter five, verse 17. Verse 17. Chapter 8, verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17. Chapter 13, verse 35. Chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 26, verse 54. Chapter 26, verse 56. And again, chapter 27, verse 9. 14 times. Matthew. Makes it clear that these things happen in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But let's look at one instance in which it's the very words of Jesus himself who makes this clear. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Turn over just a few pages. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus is preaching what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And look at what Jesus says. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus tells us, I have come to fulfill God's purpose and the law, and the prophets, and the and the people of old, what they spoke of, what they believed in, what they prophesied, what they wrote down for us, Jesus is saying, I am these things. I am. I am the fulfillment of God's promise, because when God promises something, he makes good on his word. God's purpose will prevail. And Jesus is the is the embodiment of that. But it's, who, it's not just what Jesus represents, but it's ultimately who Jesus is that is so significant as well. See, his name we see here. His name, Jesus, verse 21, and then in parentheses, for he will save his people from their sins. This is what the angel is saying to Joseph in the dream. The name Jesus means God will save That's what Jesus' name, even his name, is meant to show us that God is fulfilling his purpose, his design in bringing salvation through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God with skin on, if you will. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he came in order to fulfill God's ultimate purpose and his design. Why? So that you and I might be saved from our sin. That we might be forgiven. That we might be redeemed from the sin and the brokenness that caused us to be separated from God. You see, at just the right time, God sent Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. As we're going to go to read more about, even this week as we continue reading the life of Jesus through the lens of Matthew, the gospel writer. That Jesus lived a perfect life. And at just the right moment, Jesus suffered and died on the cross. And on the third day, he rose victoriously from the grave in order that he might complete God's saving, redemptive work. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purpose. All of God's purpose and all of his promises are pointing to Jesus, which is why Paul, who later writes in the New Testament, in in one of his letters to Timothy, Paul writes that all of their promises find their yes in Jesus. What Paul means by that is he's saying that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus himself told us that truth. Matthew, in writing his gospel, 14 times tells us that truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of of God's promise. God's timing can be trusted. His plans reveal his purpose, and his purpose will prevail. So that when Jesus promises salvation for all those who come to him in faith, you can trust that he is mighty to save. He is able to save every sinner, every person who turns to him for forgiveness of sin and redemption from their brokenness. Jesus is Is able to save, God's purpose will prevail. And His purpose was to save His people from their sins. I wonder, has there ever been a moment when you have trusted in Jesus? for the forgiveness of your sin. Has there ever been a time when you have turned to him for salvation, calling on him as Savior and Lord, when you have repented of your sin by saying, Jesus, would you come in my life? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you make me new as I trust in you? Jesus is able to save us when we turn to him for salvation. Matthew goes to such great lengths to point out the grand purpose the, the, the beautiful, intricate design that is so plainly shown to us in the story of Jesus. God's timing can be trusted, and His plans reveal His purpose. His purpose is to bring about salvation to all those who would turn to Him in faith. And this morning, if you're ready to turn to Jesus in faith, then we want to extend to you the invitation. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. After I pray, we're going to sing a song together. And even as we sing that song this morning, a song in which we celebrate God's His, His presence in our lives, Emmanuel, God with us, even as we sing that song celebrating that, If you are ready to surrender your life to Jesus, then I would encourage you that you would come. Brad and I will be standing here at the front and we would love to visit with you and and guide you through a prayer of commitment that you would commit your life to Jesus, trusting in him by faith today if you're ready to surrender your life to him. God's purpose will prevail and when you turn to him for salvation, he is able and ready to forgive you of your sins. My, My hope, my encouragement to you is that you would trust in Jesus for salvation, that you might receive his forgiveness, that you might be redeemed from your sin, that you might become a part of this story of what God is doing doing in order to redeem people from their brokenness and their sin. Would you bow your head with me and, and close your eyes as we prepare for this moment of response? I want to pray over us, and even as I pray now, I would encourage you to prepare your heart to respond to God in this moment. Lord, we are grateful that your purpose prevails in our lives. Your purpose prevails in this world, Lord, that there is nothing that can stop you. There is nothing that can thwart you. There is nothing, no power, no design, no no scheme, nothing in all of creation that can stop your purpose from prevailing. Lord, thank you for that truth. Now, as we look to you, as we respond to this, this wonderful overture of your love that you offered your life for us, we pray that you would move in our hearts and our lives. Jesus, thank you for saving us as we turn to you for salvation. Move in our midst. If there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them to faith in Christ even now in this moment. All of this we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're gonna to stand together now and sing this song and even as we sing, if God is speaking, if he's moving in, in your heart and your life, I encourage you to come now even as we celebrate what he's done in giving us Jesus. We sing. Would you come today is to lay at the feet of Jesus our offering, which is our lives. As we say, Lord, in response to all that you've done, in in response to the the great lengths that you went to to bring about salvation, I want to surrender my heart and my life to you. My prayer is that you would trust Jesus by faith. You would confess him as Savior and Lord, that you would receive the salvation that comes through trusting in him. I invite you to have a seat this morning. And